I do, and I would like to read you just a, a real brief paragraph of a situation uh, that has taken place in another country. In our church, we make it a regular habit to at least stay informed uh, about what's taking place worldwide concerning the persecuted church. What we mean by that, the persecuted church is the designation uh, that is used for uh, believers that gather in countries where they are literally being uh, hunted and actively persecuted because they are Christians. In many cases, uh, they are being tortured, killed, imprisoned because they are believers. They are not breaking any laws except maybe they have broken the law by having a Bible, if that's illegal. They may have broken the law by uh, reading the Bible out loud, if that's against the law. In some cases, it's against the law for a church to gather to worship God. Um, they're not talking about the government or politics or any of those types of things. And so it's a, it's a very real situation, and there are hundreds, thousands of believers that are affected by um, these injustices that take place every single day because they're believers. So let me just read this to you about this, about this woman. It's quite a, it's just a really cool story. My uh, Don, uh, she told me about it today, and, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, they call her Mrs. An. Uh, she wasn't a Christian when she was arrested in China. Uh, she had escaped to China from North Korea. She was uh, arrested as a defector. And she did know how to pray, though, even though she wasn't a believer. She had watched uh, an anti-Christian propaganda film while she was in North Korea. And she remembers that in that film, she saw Christians praying. And so when she was in the Chinese jail cell, someone had scratched the name of Jesus on the wall where she was feeling desperate, desperate for help. And so she remembered these Christians praying. So she thought, well, I'm going to pray to the Christians God and see if they, if he will help me. And so uh, she asked God if he would help her to get to South Korea. Well, she successfully reached South Korea. And she thought about, um, she sought out some Christians in South Korea because she wanted to grow in her faith because clearly God had answered her prayer. And so the, the, the story ends by telling us that Miss, uh, Mrs. An is now learning how to witness to her family, co-workers, and others around her, and we should pray for her continued growth and perseverance in the faith. So who knew that an anti-Christian propaganda film would be used by God uh, to initiate this thought in the life of this unbeliever who had defected from North Korea, and while sitting in a Chinese jail cell, Whoever it was who had either days, weeks, months, or years before scratched the name of Jesus in the wall, she recognized that's the name of the individual that Christians pray to. And so she threw out a challenge to God uh, and asked him out of desperation if he would help her get to South Korea, and he did. And she gave her life to Christ. What a, that's just tremendous. And those types of things happen on a regular basis uh, throughout the world happens a lot less often here in America. A lot of reasons for that. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we're going to continue our trek through Romans, Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 1, Paul has laid out the beginning of an argument, uh, uh, a, a discussion about how man or mankind is guilty before God, that we are truly guilty of, of committing sin, of committing treason, of being rebellious against God, that we're not grateful, that we don't worship Him, uh, that we are deserving of, of punishment, that God has 
disciplined us or punished us with mercy several times. Each time the intent or the purpose was to lead us to the end of ourselves so that we would turn to God. Mankind in general does not do that. And so God continues to turn them over and God did that three times. And then we get to the point to where not only is man guilty of doing the, the list of things that has been listed in Romans chapter 1, but then it also says that in general we also approve of others who do these same things. So uh, the idea may be that if, if I commit adultery, I look at others who commit adultery and I approve of what they're doing. Or it may be that I'm not guilty of committing adultery, but I see others committing adultery and I'm approving them for their choices. I'm approving their lifestyle. I'm, I'm approving of their sin against God. Uh, and, and so that's just showing how deep our sin goes. Now, Paul isn't finished. He's already mentioned, or he's used a phrase in Romans chapter 1, uh, that we, that's, that's all individuals, are without excuse. The idea being that whether it's now or when we stand before God, we will never be able to rightfully and or successfully accuse God of somehow missing something with us. Like, like, God, if you had done this, you know, I, I might have become a believer. And, and so because of your oversight or because of your error, I, I didn't have an opportunity. Uh, that can never take place because all of us have an opportunity to believe in Christ. And the main reason for that, the argument that Paul has been making, is that God has ensured that every single person is given a certain amount of light or spiritual truth certain things that we know in, intuitively, things that we know because God has given us a mind, things that we, under, that we know because we, we have a mind that can understand the world in which we are created. We can think logically. Uh, an example of that would be, uh, and you, you may have heard this example, it's used in a lot of different ways, uh, but if you were to find a fully functioning uh, watch on the beach, the one thing that you would not think is that that watch uh, came together randomly. You might think the watch ended up on the beach randomly because somebody lost it. That would be true. But the idea of a fully functioning watch that keeps correct time, we know that it, 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 it didn't form itself. It didn't form because the waves were crashing on it. It had to be fashioned by someone intelligent. You know, our normal immediate logical way of thinking leads us to that correct conclusion. We may not know who it was or if it was more than one person that worked on the watch, but we would know that it was an intelligent being who created and crafted and put that together. And that idea is then presented to us as being one of the main ideas that when we look at nature, whether we're looking at the world around us or looking at how we are made as individuals, what we should immediately recognize is that something very intelligent has brought all these things together uh, on this planet and we have life as we know it. And so we, again, don't have an excuse because God has left his, his footprint, God has left his handprint everywhere and always leads us to the truth that God exists and that God should be worshipped. So going on in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul then says this, Therefore, you are inexcusable. So once again, uh, again, therefore means based on all that he has said, we have no excuse. No one can, 
can claim uh, a justifying reason as to why they should not be condemned for the wrong they've done. Uh, we, we cannot blame God. We cannot blame anyone. We can only blame ourselves. And again, one of the things, one of the main principles of the scripture, and this is important, and that is that God always holds us as individuals 100% responsible for everything that we do because everything we do, we choose to do. And some people don't like that statement because they think that there are some exceptions to the rule, that there are times in our lives that we're, that we are forced to do something, uh, that something is done to us that gives us an out on wrong that we've done. And that's never true. Uh, even when it comes to a person who is addicted to heroin or cocaine, that individual always has the ability to make a choice concerning that. It's just that they don't want to. They, there's, there's something uh, in, in the drug, something about the drug, that to them is more compelling or more important than anything else they want to do. Now, a person may not be at that position immediately. You may get to that position. But the bottom line is, is that God always holds us 100% responsible. So whatever definition that a person wants to use for, a, let's say, any kind of addiction, if we're going to be consistent with what God has said, then we need to make sure that that definition never diminishes the idea that we are responsible. So it's true that I may have areas of weakness. Uh, I may have areas that I am more prone to give into wrong thoughts or feelings or actions than other times. But even though I may have that propensity, I'm never forced to do that. I, I, I never have, there's nothing that comes over me that, that makes me do those things. Now, we're not talking about, for example, there's a, there's a drug, it, it's, it's been, uh, I guess it's similar to, to people who do bath salts. It's called Flacca. I, I don't know if it's even still around anymore. I know that it was kind of making rounds in Florida uh, several years ago. Uh, Flacco is, is a very uh, dangerous drug. Uh, you, you take it once and it can destroy your mental capabilities immediately. And, and you will never recover from it. You will be in some form retarded or handicapped if you live through it for the rest of your life. It's really uh, just devastating in every way. So an individual may take, let's say, Flacca, and then during a brief period of time you go nuts. And there's videos of individuals just running full speed in, into parked cars and, and breaking windshields or the, 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 the back uh, hatch, uh, rear glass with, with their head. Uh, and in, in those cases, the drug is making the person do that. And so that would be true. We're not saying that can't take place. But when they chose to take the drug, they chose to take the drug. No one made them do that. They may have felt compelled and they may have felt overwhelmed. But remember that to be to feel overwhelmed does not mean that you are overwhelmed. Huge difference. Uh, so then you take the drug and then the drug takes over. Uh, but now that what's not true also, which and this is important because some think this. So you take cocaine and they would say, well, eventually you get to a, to a point to where uh, because you've used, I guess, X amount of cocaine, then you can no longer resist the desire for cocaine. Uh, I, 
from the medical things I've read that, that you don't get to that point. Now, it may be the, the desire for the drug may continue to grow much stronger than before and can truly feel overwhelming. But you still have the ability because God still holds you responsible. But he also holds the person who sold it to you responsible as well. So no one's getting away with anything here. So again, Paul then begins with that truth that we are inexcusable when it comes to this. Then he says this again. So therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So here in this passage, in verse 1, God is not condemning a person because he's judging. Right? That's not what he's doing. He is condemning the individual who judges because he's doing the same thing. So it would be like me then. Let's like again. Let's say that I'm, uh, let's say that I'm a thief, and then I'm condemning a man who's stealing. And what God is saying is, Bob, Bob, what are you doing? You're condemning this individual for being a thief. You're a thief. You condemn this individual for stealing a car, but but you steal every day from your boss or whatever the case may happen to be. So that's the idea here. Uh, and what he's showing us again is, is A, the knowledge we have and our guilt. The knowledge is, is that I know the stealing is wrong because I'm condemning an individual for doing wrong. So in a sense, that makes me even more culpable because I'm acknowledging that I know that theft is wrong, but I'm doing it. And so as I condemn this individual, I'm actually condemning myself. I am proving that I have knowledge and that I'm moving against the knowledge. And that So Paul then... I guess you could say it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's philosophical because it's not really what he's doing. More of, a, of an apologetic defense of the rightness of God, the rightness of God's judgment, and again, man's guilt. So he's kind of building that case. He's doing what a lawyer would do. Uh, a lawyer may, uh, may come to court and let's say that uh, he's a prosecuting attorney. When he, when he presents the evidence that a man or woman is guilty, he presents the evidence and then kind of moves the jury to the to the point to where it becomes clear this man is guilty, and then what? Then along the way, he he may pick up several other tracks of thought. In other words, here's the physical evidence that we have that proves the individual was there at the crime scene, and then along the way, he's going to weave in the story of this man's relationship to let's say whoever the crime is against to show that he had motive. So he's not just saying, well, there's the evidence. We could tell that he was there the same day. He's guilty and then sit down. No, he wants to uh, show that the individual is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. So he wants to, to prove that he was there. He wants to, to prove the individual had motive. And then he also wants to prove the individual had um, the, uh, um, the ability. So in other words, he's, he's not crippled. And let's say if he stabs somebody... Uh, he has a withered hand. No, he, he has the ability to do this. And then he had the opportunity. And so the individual may say, well, I was at the airport in Tampa. And so what they, they may have evidence showing that, no, you were close to this location or you were, you were within a certain number of minutes of this location by the evidence of this, of this videotape. So the idea is, is he's going to use those four tracks to show that this individual is guilty all four ways. And then you put all four together then you have an overwhelming case of the individual's guilt. So that's what Paul is doing here in trying to convince us that we are guilty. Now, the reason why Paul is doing that 
is Paul is not doing that because he doesn't like people. And Paul is not doing that because he doesn't like any particular person. Paul is doing this because he knows, first of all, we have a propensity uh, to try to find ways, once again, to excuse ourselves, to say that I'm not that bad, to say that, well, I deserve some punishment from God, but I don't deserve to go to hell, or I don't deserve this, I don't deserve that. So what Paul wants to do is he wants to make sure that we really understand that we are guilty, and there's no way out of this. Uh, one of my favorite authors, especially early on in my life, uh, when I was really growing as a believer, when that I really began to grow a lot in my early 20s, and I had become introduced to an individual by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He was a Christian philosopher. Uh, just That was my introduction to apologetics. I'd never heard of apologetics. That was my introduction to a Christian philosopher. I'd never heard of that before. Uh, and when I began to read his books, I just kind of devoured them. In one of his early books, he was asked this question. And the question was, if you only had 60 minutes to talk with a non-believer, and let's say that after that 60 minutes, that non-believer, for whatever the reason, just to set up the, the question, was, was going to die. How would you, you know, what would you talk to him about? And, and how would you divide up your time? Like, you know, obviously the idea is that if you're talking to an individual who only has 60 minutes to live, well, you want to talk to him about the gospel. You want, you want to explain to them how they can know Christ because the rest of their life is at stake. And so how would you divide that up? You know, how much time would he spend on the gospel? How much time would he spend on what Paul's doing? You know, convincing him that he's, that he's a sinner in need of Christ. And what Francis Schaeffer said is that he would spend 45 minutes of 60 minutes explaining to this individual why it is he is a sinner and why he needs Christ. Not because he hates the individual and wants him to feel bad, but because he loves him and, and because he cares for him and recognizes that if we don't see our need of salvation, if we don't see that, then we see no need to come to Christ. There's no need to believe in Christ. So that's what Paul is doing, and that's why he's writing in this way. And this is really important because we live in a time, and, and this is not unique to our time, it just seems to be much more pronounced, that we live in a time that we are, uh, I guess you would say, um, convinced of our innocence. Now, I don't really think there's a lot of people who think that they're completely innocent. But I mean innocent in the sense that many people believe that they have not done anything bad enough that deserves hell. M several do not believe they've done anything that is deserving of even of God's wrath. That there are a few things with them that might need an adjustment here or there. But this idea that we are hopelessly and helplessly separated from God, people don't believe that. And they don't really want to hear it either. Uh, so Paul is, is really seeking to develop that to make sure that we understand our plight. And of course, what he is talking about here are those things that are true about us as individuals. This is just not his idea. Uh, this is not his opinion. These are, are propositional truths that he is stating about who we are and our condition. So again, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So he says, 
in contrast to this, there's something we know about God. And what we know about God is God's judgment is righteous. And it is righteous because it's done in a particular way. And what he says here is that he judges according to truth. So there is what is called truth. That is a standard that God uses. And when it comes to truth, he uses that uh, against those who practice these things that we've already gone through in great detail in chapter 1 and what this individual, as Paul kind of moves on into, uh, who is not only a, uh, giving a nod of approval to those who do such things, uh, but then we have another guy here who recognizes the wrong people do and he condemns it, even though he himself was doing the same thing. So God is using truth. Uh, no one can escape this. There's no way to get around this. There's no falsehood to it. And so, uh, just like in a court of law, if, if the judge or the jury has the truth and they can use the truth to judge your guilt or your innocence, then it will be true and right. If the, if the evidence points to the fact that you are innocent, then we would, we would accuse the jury of, of someone tampering with the jury if they were to find you guilty. But if you're guilty and they find you not guilty, we would say that somebody has tampered with, something's going on there because others can see the truth, the, the line, the standard that we're using, that you've clearly broken that, and therefore you're guilty. So God then, when he judges us, always judges according to truth. That should make us feel really uncomfortable. In other words, we, on one hand, we want to be measured by the truth or to be judged by the truth. But because we're all guilty of breaking the law of God in so many ways, I don't really like that because my overwhelming guilt will be exposed. And our natural tendency is to want to hide from that. We don't want to have to face the music for that. Paul goes on, verse 3. He says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So it's a rhetorical question, but he says, so think about this for a minute. You know what you've done. You know what you're doing. Do you really think you're going to escape? Some people today will say this. They say, well, I, I don't believe in God. There's no God. There's no judgment. I, I've got nothing to worry about. Just because you say there's no God doesn't mean there isn't a God. Just because you say there's no judgment doesn't say that, or doesn't mean that there is no judgment. Remember from Romans 1, even the individual who says, there's no God, there's no final judgment, I've got nothing to worry about. Romans 1 tells us that that person knows that what they just said isn't true. That person knows there's a judgment, and that person knows that God exists. We need to remember that as we share the gospel with people. That's why, even though an individual may, may say, well, I don't really need to hear this because I don't believe in God, I can ask them, because I may not convince them in an argument that God exists, because, again, he's already being dishonest. He's already stating that he, that he either knows or he believes that God doesn't exist when actually he knows that God does exist. So I may ask him, well, let me share with you what I consider to be the whole gospel, and then if you want to poke holes in it, then, then we can have a discussion. Because my goal is for him to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he may acquiesce to that and say, okay, 
Well, I'll, I'll let you finish. But I just want you to know, I, I don't believe in God. And so none of this makes sense to me. Because again, we know that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God that Paul's already talked about, it is the power of God to salvation. Because I'm still speaking to a person who knows that God exists. And when I present the gospel, that twinge of guilt, you know, his mind might be pricked by the truth. He may not want to admit it, but he's being forced to deal with the truth. And so that's what Paul's doing here as he, as he talks about these things. So verse 4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So here's another track that uh, we sometimes don't think about. Even though we, Paul has talked about this, and we know this to be true, that God's wrath, that God's anger against our wrongdoing uh, is, a, is a true statement, and that God's going to judge us for our sin. There's another aspect of God that Paul talks about here that can also lead us to repentance. That's, that's what the goal is, is to get us to repent of our ways. And we'll talk about the word repent in a bit. But there's another track, and that is that here, Paul now brings up and says, you know, you know, you, you practice these things, Maybe it's because you actually despise the goodness of God. Because God is good to you, you despise that. Because God's goodness also leads you to what? Repentance. In other words, I know I don't deserve God's goodness. I know I don't deserve for God to be kind to me. And because God is kind to me, that, that causes me to repent. Uh, I think sometimes it's meant by the phrase that we use sometimes in relationships that you can kill a person with kindness. So someone's being mean to you at work or someone's being mean to you at school. And so then you decide that you're going to treat that person with extra kindness. That no matter what they do to you, you're going to be kind and loving and forgiving. And there are times, and we've, we've read stories about this and heard stories about this, where an individual's animosity towards another person is broken down because they cannot believe the kindness of that person. Uh, I, there's uh, several Christian, famous Christians who have stories like that. I believe Corey Ten Boom is one of them. She was a, a Jewish lady who uh, suffered in the concentration camps in Germany during World War II. Uh, the guards there, they, they treated the Jews like worse than dogs, worse than animals. Uh, it was horrific what they did to them. And there was a particular one that uh, she just had a lot of animosity towards. And after she became a believer, uh, she forgave him. And I believe that um, what they met at some point, and she was very kind to him, and it, it, it broke him. Her kindness broke him, and he wanted to know who it was that she believed in because he couldn't believe that she would, she would treat him that way. And there's a lot of stories that are like that. Uh, and when we get that from God, God treats us that way. So let's just talk about these words for a minute. You know, there's the word goodness or kindness. There's the word forbearance, the word patience. So God towards both believers and non-believers, or, or God treats the human race in this way. So the word kindness or the word goodness just speaks of all of God's benefits, all the kind things that he does uh, for mankind. In other words, um, even though we despise his goodness, he's still good to us. Uh, and even Christians sometimes, you know, we can be guilty of that. So let me look at my notes here uh, as we go on. So some people may believe 
that they are exempt from the judgment of God for whatever the reason. Um, they, in other words, they may think, well, because God is, is good to me, I'm exempt from certain things. Uh, they may take advantage of God's goodness and God's providence. Uh, they may enjoy the pleasures of life, you know, the wonders of love, children, parents, friends, their spouse, uh, things of beauty, fun, all the delicacies of life that God gives. God is kind to them and they experience all of that. You know, they can, they can have a nice, big, thick, juicy steak whenever they want. They have un uninterrupted time with their children. Their children love them. They love their children. They watch their children grow up. They watch their children be successful. Uh, they may have a, a, a beautiful wife or a great husband. Uh, they may have a great job. All of, those, all of those things come from God. They're not accidents. They come from God. Why is it happening to you and not to others? Well, we don't know. God doesn't tell us. It's just, that's the way that it is. But in each case, God never makes a mistake. And so too often what happens is individuals who experience all the goodness of God, you don't, you don't hear them ever repenting of their denial of God's existence. Uh, they don't give God the glory. So I don't know anything about him really. Uh, Steve, I think it's Steve Bezos. He's the owner, uh, the founder of Amazon. Uh, if he's not the richest man in the world, he's one of them. Like, I mean, his, what he has is insane. So there is literally nothing he can't do. Whatever he wants to do, it doesn't matter what the price is. He, you know, if he wants his own private island, he can buy it. He can buy any plane. He can buy any boat. He can buy his own private army. I mean, whatever he wants to do, he can do it. There is not one item of luxury that he cannot get his hands on. I've, I've never heard him give God the glory for any of that. I, I'm pretty confident he's not a believer. So that man, he may not see himself as somebody who despises God. He might even deny that God exists, but he despises the goodness of God. He refuses to acknowledge the truth that what he has comes from God. So, now sometimes individuals may say, well, I don't see God as being good. Um, but again, if, if God isn't good, then how can God allow certain things to happen? Like the goodness that, that a person's experiencing. Only a good God can, can do that. Um, they, what, what some people don't understand is, is God's goodness prevents you and I from falling over dead the moment we commit sin. That's God's goodness. Uh, because again, uh, due to the fall of man, that meta-narrative that we've talked about before, uh, the, the, the true story from Genesis that explains the way the world is, that explains reality, we know that uh, God has every reason to wipe out the human race. But he hasn't done that. Why? Because of his kindness. Because of his forbearance. Because of his patience. Um, the, uh, you and I are able to take another breath because of God's goodness. Sometimes people will say that, but they don't really mean that. You know, they, they say, well, I want to thank God for waking me up this morning and for, you know, the breath that I take. But they don't really think much about it. Uh, but we should. Um, they're just, maybe they're just rejoicing that they haven't been judged yet. Uh, God has created us to be able to make choices, to make free choices. God has, has made us so that we could kind of radiate his image. But again, man has rebelled. Uh, God freely made, God has freely made us. He's given us life. He's given us, given us the conditions to continue that life. 
Uh, God has every right to take that life back if we choose to violate those conditions that he's laid out, which would be to acknowledge him, to worship him, and to honor him. Uh, whenever we sin, we strike a blow at God's sovereign character. Uh, we misrepresent his image. We misrepresent God's uh, intention for us. If God takes back what he freely gave us because we violated his conditions, is that unfair? The answer would be no. So if you and I were to drop dead now, God could never be accused rightly of being unfair. He might still be accused of being unfair, but it won't be right. Uh, it, it would be a wrong accusation uh, because, again, God has given us these things. And so he, he has absolute, the absolute right because he's God to do with it as he, as he pleases. So again, remember that God has established the conditions of life as well as giving us life itself. Forbearance, uh, it's, the, it's a word that's used uh, for a truce, uh, for the cessation of hostilities, the withholding of judgment. Uh, so God, again, exercises forbearance in all of our lives, both believers and non-believers, every day. Because we sin against God, we are deserving of God's judgment at that moment, and God does not judge us at that moment. That's because of God's forbearance. That's his goodness. We do this with people that we know. You know, you might have a friend that you know when you're talking to him or her. You may know at that moment they're lying to you about something. And you choose not to let them have it. Uh, that You may be uh, correcting your child and they're lying to you. And you choose to overlook that for whatever the reason. Uh, or maybe you know that your child's done something wrong and you choose to overlook it for whatever the reason. Uh, you know, it. you're practicing forbearance. So again, God puts up with man without immediately executing vengeance on us, even though, again, he has the absolute right to do that. Patience here, the word that he uses, refers to one who has the power to avenge but doesn't use it. It's one of the great character characteristics of God is that he is patient with us. He is patient with mankind because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And the Bible says that. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Um, so here the verse expresses the thought of forbearance and it emphasizes a degree of patience that's still unexhausted. So it is so great to know that, that God has a great deal of patience. So it implies a long course of ingratitude on the part of people and imparts or imports an extreme degree of patience on the part of God. So when we talk about God being patient, that really is a way to glorify God. We are extolling the fact that God is really an incredible being when we speak of his patience because he puts up with so much stuff. We, we sometimes do the same thing. We sometimes will say about an individual, I, still, I don't know how that individual can put up with that. And somebody may say, well, it's because they love that person like a brother. They love that person like a sister. Or that person is their son or is their daughter. And so because of their great love for them, they're willing to put up with this for years and years and years and years. That's, that speaks of the, of the greatness of the individual who's exercising patience. Here, God is exercising his patience towards us. That's what Paul is trying to get at. Again, here, as he talks about the fact that we are inexcusable, is that perhaps the reason why we've not repented is because we despise God's kindness. We despise his forbearance. And we despise his patience. It makes no sense to despise God in that way. That, that doesn't make any logical sense. But that's what he's talking about. And that's what he's speaking of. So I guess we could ask this. How do millions of men and women respond to the true and even the greater benevolence of God? Because benevolence is the goodness of God. 
What we're talking about, if you read any kind of systematic theology, we're talking about a, a term uh, or a phrase that's used, and it's called common grace. So grace talks about God's goodness. Common means that which is common to all men, meaning both believer and non-believer, not just necessarily believers. There is a grace that God extends to just believers. But there's also common grace that God extends towards all men. As the Bible says, it rains on the wicked and on the righteous both. The grain grows for the wicked and for the righteous both. Uh, the animals on the farm reproduce for the wicked and the righteous both. God is good. right? All of us can go to the grocery store and buy food. All of us can go out to eat. Uh, all of us experience that. All of us experience the freedom of the country we live in, both believers and uh, non-believers. So that's because of God's common grace. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have sinned against Jesus Christ by denying his claims on you as a person, by refusing his proper lordship over your life. So that's what we mean when we as believers sometimes speak of ourselves and others, uh, speaking of ourselves before we became believers, that we were sinning 24 hours a day, that every breath we took was an act of rebellion against God, because every moment of the day that we refused to acknowledge and allow Christ to be the Lord of our life is an act of rebellion. There's never a moment in time where that rebellion stops until we submit ourselves to Christ and then everything changes. So if you are a non-believer, remember that you are sinning with every breath you take because you're rebelling against God. You are pushing back against his sovereignty and against his right uh, to rule over your life. And remember, we live in a very negative society. So when we talk about God ruling over our life. We just we don't like the way that sounds. Uh, we sometimes equate that with like like the pastor. Well, you know, I don't want the church or the pastor telling me how to live my life. I'm not really going to be telling you how to live your life. I am going to tell you how we should live our lives. In other words, what does God say we should do? God says that as believers that we should be kind and honest and gracious. So yes, I am going to tell you how you should live your life, but what I'm telling you is also applicable to me as well. So it's not that I'm just out of my own opinion. I'm telling you that you should live here and not there and do this kind of job and not this. That's not what we're talking about. So we're talking about a God who's benevolent, who wants to only do good for us, who seeks to tell us how to live. And in seeking to tell us how to live is not for his benefit, meaning he doesn't. he's not going to get anything from us that he doesn't already have. So, so there's no taking advantage, there's no manipulation, there's no secret or hidden agenda, because God is completely different. This is not some flawed individual trying to control your life. This is a, the, a benevolent, loving, kind, gracious God who's been showing you through all these years of your life forbearance. A God who has not executed vengeance on you because of your rebellion against him. He's not punished you for the sins that you commit every day. He's been very kind and very patient with you. This is the God uh, that we are to um, submit ourselves to. This is the God who wants to tell us how to live our lives, but again, in a way that is good for us, uh, in a way that is according to his righteousness and his goodness. God has used, I believe, in your life and my life, various methods to awaken us out of our need 
and bring us to an open confession of our sin, which I believe is some of the, the some of the purposes of common grace, that God has just filled our lives with goodness, so that He would bring us to repentance. But we're proving that man is numb to that, that man is rebellious towards that. So we just refuse to acknowledge uh, His hand and these benefits. So we need to awaken to God's goodness. So if you're so if you're a believer, and you're praying for a non-believer. One of the things you can pray for them is that that person would be awakened to see God's goodness, that they would be awakened to their own shortcomings, and then also take the time to evaluate how good God is to them. We live in a time when people are very ungrateful. Uh, we live in a time when when uh, people tend to focus on the negatives and not the positives. So if you're in a discussion with an individual and let's say that they're they have a list of complaints as to why they don't want to believe in God. Well, I, I can't believe in God because I've had nothing but a life of misery. And they and they go through a long list of things. And let's say that in their list, it's all accurate. Well, it's not wrong for us to point out to them that there's probably an equally long list of the goodness of God. And, and again, God, is not put, God should have taken vengeance on them years ago because of their sin and rebellion, and God hasn't. And we can kind of then go on down the line of the good things that God has done for them. So we pray that God would awaken them to see that. You're not going to get the person to see that by having a brilliant argument. We're going to get them to see that by being prepared and then by praying that God would change their heart. Because remember that sin does this to all of us. Sin makes our heart hard. Sin causes us to be deaf to the truth of God and what He says. Let me explain something to you from God's perspective. Number one, remember that God does not owe us anything. You know, people believe that the government owes us things. We believe that people in certain positions of authority owe us things. And we sometimes tend to think that God owes us something. I'm not sure why we think God owes us something. I guess people have various reasons why. Partly because, again, we're convinced of, I guess, our own goodness or the fact that somehow because of the kind of victims that we are, um, that our victimhood then means that God owes us because of our suffering. God doesn't owe us anything. God's already given us more than what we deserve. So what we also need to realize, and this is a tough one, that God does not even owe us a chance at salvation. He doesn't owe anyone a chance at salvation. He doesn't owe it. We've rebelled against Him. God gives us many chances at salvation because He's good, but He doesn't owe us that. So, you know, when you read through the Bible, instead of the Bible, it's very important to remember that that we make distinctions, that we that we recognize and that we're precise with the truth of what God communicates and what he says and what he doesn't say and what it means. And so as we work our way through this, what we see clearly is God has already given us more than what we deserve and that he owes us nothing and he doesn't owe us salvation. He only owes us judgment. That's the in fact, we'll get to that eventually in chapter 3. He makes it very clear that not only have we all sinned, but as you continue to talk about sin, he'll make it clear that God actually owes us. It's like a paycheck because the, uh, the, the wages of sin is death. You know, that's, that's an eternal separation from God. Uh, hard truths, but, but again, truths that are, that are uh, important for an individual to come to understand. So, 
when, going back to our meta-narrative in the book of Genesis. So when Adam and Eve first sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, God could have judged, judged them immediately at that point in time and sent them to hell. If he had done that, he would have been absolutely just in his actions. Uh, they would have received nothing more than what we would say is their proper deserts. Um, that's what would have happened. But what God did do, if God allowed them and said to live, and to produce offspring, offspring until there were literally millions of their descendants spread all over the entire earth to occupy it and maybe pollute it by their abundant acts of idolatry and theft and fornication and hatred and greed and all various forms of sin and then brush all of them into eternal torment, God would nevertheless still have been just because he was only doing what was right. Nobody would ever be able to find fault with him. The righteous angels in heaven would still be able to sing clearly and loudly what they say in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So again, God owes you and me nothing. Yet, as we know, God did not immediately banish Adam and Eve to hell, nor did He consign the masses of mankind to torment suddenly later. On the contrary, though there is a judgment to come, God continually poured out His blessing on men and women. Let me read to you from a quote from uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a, a pastor of a church in Philadelphia, a terrific man of God, a terrific preacher, and he said this, You are not a believer in Christ, and yet you, yet you are still out of hell. That is the grace of God. That's putting it succinctly. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet you're not in hell. That is God's goodness. You are not in hell, but you are on the good earth. You have health, you have prosperity. That is the common grace of God. The vast majority of those who hear uh, the words of the Word of God are living in comfortable homes and apartments. That's common grace. You are not fleeing as refugees along the highway of a country desolated by war. And we see refugee camps all over the world as uh, whole families run away from those who are just murdering people left and right. Uh, and the various civil wars and different types of things that are taking place. So you and I are not uh, in long lines. In fact, even if you are a refugee and you're in this country, uh, you are probably being treated really, really well, and you are experiencing an abundance of freedom uh, that you've never experienced before, uh, an abundance of blessings that, that uh, come to you as never before. That is common grace. You might be an individual who works and you come home from your job and your child runs to meet you and your child has good health and good spirits. That's common grace. You are able to put your hand in your pocket and give your, your kid an allowance. It's common grace that you have that kind of an abundance. You go into your house and you sit down to a good meal. It's common grace. Today, as you hear these words, there are more than a billion and a half people who will go to sleep uh, without enough to satisfy their hunger. The fact that you have enough, again, is God's common grace. You and I don't deserve it. If you think that you deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath which you and I so richly earned, then we simply show our ignorance of spiritual principles. So that's, that's quite a, a statement that Donald Gray Barnhouse makes, and one that I think that we could chew on for a while and should think about. John Murray says that there are three main benefits or three main effects of God's common grace just in the area of God's work of restraint. So this is another way to think about uh, the good that God does to, to all men. Number one, God restrains sin. God, uh, God places restraint 
on the working of human depravity and prevents the unholy affections and principles of men from manifesting all the potentialities inherent in them. He prevents depravity from bursting forth in all its vehemence and violence. The idea being that uh, why, for example, uh, we, we hear stories of the drug cartels in South America and in Mexico. We hear how many of these drug cartels hire mercenaries and they terrorize whole villages and towns. So why is it limited there? Why isn't there more of that? It's, it's not because of another country's army. It's not because of intelligence. It's because of God. God restrains evil. I do think we're seeing evidence that God is lessening his hand of restraint. And we're going to see more and more evil begin to manifest itself. That's to cause us to turn to God to recognize that we can't stop evil. But still, for, the, for I guess we could say the most part, God is restraining evil. There is a restraint upon divine vengeance. In other words, God has suspended the full measure of his divine wrath due to sin. So again, that's common because we've already talked about that, but this is the list or the three things that John Murray, uh, he was a, a missionary and a pastor in the 1800s, so he says this, Even the evil that is present in the physical realm is the result of the divine curse, and the curse is but the expression of God's wrath. These facts demonstrate that, his, that this world's history is a dispensation of the divine forbearance and long-suffering. Restraint is therefore not only a restraint upon the unholy passion of man's heart, but also a restraint upon the holy wrath of God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. And then in Acts 17, it, uh, uh, Luke writes, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And then the third thing that John Murray talked about was this. Sin introduces disintegration, and disorganization in every realm God places restraint upon these effects, he prevents the full development of this disintegration. So some people talk about our own country today and that it seems to be disintegrating. I, I think it is. Maybe we should ask the question, why isn't it disintegrating faster? Why is it seem to be disintegrating now? Why wasn't it disintegrating to a larger degree earlier? There seems to be more and more disorganization in every aspect of government life and social life. Why? Well, it's because God is restraining. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, God said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. God cursed the ground because of man's sin. Uh, the ground uh, doesn't yield its strength. Although its strength was to be sapped by thorns and thistles, yet it brought forth enough for the sustenance of life. So again, God has been good to us. So I can't go to the next aspect of this. Uh, we'll have to do this next week. But I do think there's a lot here, just in these uh, four verses uh, that we've covered about God and about God's desire that man repent. As believers, what we need to remember is this. 
when we think about calling upon non-believers to repent, we want to make sure that we're checking our attitude and that we're not asking others to repent where there seems to be a sense of, I gotcha. Or a sense of, yeah, you need, you know, you, you're being crushed by God. You need to believe in Christ. It's, that's just the wrong way for all that to come across. We should be pleading for people to repent. Because their soul and the soul of their families are at stake. They're, they're going to suffer immeasurably at the hand of God. They're going to they're gonna receive, remember what we would have received if it wasn't for the grace of God in our life. Not only God's common grace, but God's particular grace in bringing us to salvation. So we should be praying that God would open the hearts of those that we care about. That they would again recognize His goodness, as well as the fact that they would acknowledge that they are in, indeed in need of a Savior because of the wrong they've done. That God would remind them of the evil that they've committed. So I want to encourage you to do that. Let's close in prayer, and we will pick it up next week in verse 5 of Romans 2. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness to us. And and indeed, you've been so good to us, Father, in so many ways. Remind us, Father, that we are undeserving of your goodness. Yet, Lord, it pleases you to give us the good things that you give us. You are an amazing God. And, Father, we will never be able to repay you for what you've given us. The fact that you love us is overwhelming to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to become more like you in every way. For those, Father, who may not know Christ, we pray that they would think on these things and that your Spirit would convict them of their need of Christ and they would come to experience the joyous works of of the gospel of salvation that we've experienced. And so, Father, until next time we get together, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.